Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here is what's on the podcast today. Post-COVID life, which businesses will survive and will a plastics ban have an impact on which restaurant can survive? Plus, what's the Swiss cheese model? Is it as delicious as it sounds? And the TDSB has extended deadlines in eliminated exams. Wait a second. No all-night cramming? All of that coming up. Let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is important that we all have something in our mind, something that we're working towards in this very difficult and trying time. Uh, Let's get into it, shall we, today? Uh, The uh, latest on the numbers right here, 721. That is your daily number, and I am numb to the numbers because I don't think they mean anything. And if you think to yourself, well, 721, we're down from what, you know, almost 1,000 where we were Friday. So what was all the freaking out about? I don't know. Well, look at that testing number, 32,000. There's something to freak out about. I thought we were supposed to be at 50,000 by now. But you know what? The testing numbers are down. You know why the testing numbers are down? Because nobody's going for a test. I don't understand that. I don't get it either, Dr. Williams. 26,500 pending. So that number is down too, and that's good, as I've been pointing that number out out over the past couple of weeks, that that used to be, you know, creeping up, and it was, you know, well into, uh, you know, up up to 90,000 itself. It was way, way above the number of tests that we were actually doing. And now, so that's down, which is great, which means the tests that we are performing are clearing faster. But this whole appointment situation at hospitals, which has been designed to get those lineups out of the hospitals, outside of the testing centers, because I think the Ford government took a look at that and said, you know, we just can't let that be the visual that the newscast put on day in, day out, story after story about parents, you know, in a lineup for six hours with their toddler. So the government made a move to change that, and then they changed you know, what the symptom list was. So you don't actually have to go for a test. You know, you, you parents already lined up for seven hours and got a test for your kid to so go back to school. You don't need to do that anymore. Turns out you never had to in the first place. So all of that has changed the way we do testing in the province of Ontario. And <laughs> as a result, we are now, as the premier would say, uh, comparing apples and bananas. I don't know why he always says that. I, to me, apples and oranges, he's from Etobicoke, I'm from Burlington, tomato, tomato, I guess. I don't know. But nevertheless, I, I think you're, you're comparing apples and bananas here because previously when you had all the big numbers, you know, that was because we were processing a lot more. And we are not processing the kind of tests we are now. So if the numbers are coming down, what is this, one of these Donald Trump moves where it's like, oh, we're testing too much. Is that what? Because if you feel better because the numbers are lower, 721, take a look at that test number. It's lower too. So I'm numb about the numbers. you got to be kidding me. I just, I can't get too wrapped up on it, Doug Ford. I keep saying it over and over again. Here's a number, though that I am paying closer attention to, and that's your percent positive. That's a key metric. It is a key metric, your percent positive, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the percentage of tests that come back as positive for COVID-19. And provincially, it's at 2.2%. And in some neighborhoods in Toronto, we know it's in double digits. And to give you some context, 
use 3% as your benchmark. Anything above 3, bad news, you need to start putting in some kind of control measures. Anything above 5%, you got to shut it all down. So that's why we're at a point where we're doing this selective move with uh, various areas going in to a modified stage two. You know, post-COVID life is going to be so different in ways that I think is impossible to tell right now. You know, it just every day there, there seems to be a drib and a drab of news. That, and you think to yourself, why add all of that up? And the experience for especially for kids, think about, you know, life will be different once this pandemic ends, and it will end. And there are some things that just will not come back. For example, this news today, Mississauga Palladium is closing permanently. Forget about it. It's over. Forget about the batting cages and the go-karts and all the tokens that you get and all the rest. How many birthday parties did you either attend or take your kid to or host right there that's that's a staple now this follows the closure of laser quest it's already announced it's shutting down if you got kids of a certain age man you know that laser quest that that is a standard that is a standard birthday party go-to and it's gone you got to be kidding me And I think for kids, you know, kids are like, well, what now? So when we do get out of this pandemic, where will we be? What will be, what will kids be doing? Will they just be like, hey, we're all having a big birthday party. Everybody get on their PS12 or whatever it is at that point. We'll just do it virtually because everybody's got, you know, everybody's got 3D glasses. VR is, you know, VR chips in your brains. Like, don't leave the house. You don't need to. It's too dangerous out there. That's going to be something that's going to stick around for a long, long time after this is all done. Think about restaurants for just one moment. How, how much do you miss restaurants? I mean, I miss restaurants, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm acclimatized to eating at home now. I'm, you know, I, you know, if they opened up backup restaurants and a pandemic was done, sure, I'd go back out. But would I go back out as much as I have been? I don't know. I'm kind of used to it now. I kind of like it this way. And so the concern has got to be, obviously, as we move back into this modified stage two, no in-restaurant eating in Peel, Toronto, or Ottawa, and so many of these restaurants hurting so badly. The question will be, just like Palladium, just like Laser Quest, how many of them will there be left when this is finally done? How many can survive? Well, that, according to the Premier, and obviously, and I agree with him 100% on this, that is up to you and me. It is largely up to you and me to decide you know, if we have disposable income, how are we going to spend it? Obviously, you know, you're not going out, you're not going traveling, you're not doing a lot of things. So, you know, you can't go to the restaurant. How about a little takeout? Here's Doug Ford yesterday talking about takeout. If each of us order takeout, even at least once a week, that's millions of dollars to support our mom and pop shops, restaurants, and small businesses. It can be the difference between 
a line cook getting a shift or not. It can make the difference between the delivery driver making rent or not. It can make the difference between a family keeping their businesses open or closing for good. Together, we can all make a huge difference. That is Doug Ford. Together, we can all make a huge difference. And I applaud the Premier for what he had to say about that yesterday and also applaud him for using his bully pulpit again to call out Uber Eats and the enormous commission, specifically Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the only one, but he's the only one that Premier mentioned by name in terms of commissions. And what I would do if you were ordering and you were using a third-party app Here's the thing you do is you go to the restaurant that you want. You go to directly to their website or you find out what the prices are on their website. Then go check it out on your third-party app. Now find out what your price is. And you ask yourself, hmm, wouldn't it be better if a portion of that money stayed in my pocket? And it wouldn't it be a lot better if a bigger portion of all of this stayed in the restaurateur's pocket? Because the whole reason I'm ordering this takeout is because I would like this restaurant to survive because one day I might like to go in it again. So keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind when you're talking about takeout is this plastic ban that the feds have brought in. Remember, six items will be banned by 2021. Single-use plastics, grocery bags, stir sticks, six-pack six pack rings, utensils, straws, some foodware that is made of hard-to-recycle plastics. A lot of this being used by restaurants right now. And, of course, take up, take out on the way up, so they're using more of it. What's this going to mean if you're going to take those away at a time when these restaurants are already struggling? Well, here is the Prime Minister earlier today speaking on the CJOB morning show in Winnipeg. I'm young enough to remember when my Big Mac came in styrofoam containers and people made changes towards cardboard. I mean, uh, people are very innovative in terms of that. What Canadians know uh, is that uh, there is far too much uh, plastic going into our landfills, not being recycled into our environment, uh, that uh, needs to be cleaned up. It's a commitment we made two years ago, and we've worked with uh, industry partners. We've worked with people to, to find uh, replacements uh, for uh, for some of these single-use plastics. I mean, stir sticks. We know lots of people are using uh, wooden and, and cardboard stir sticks instead of uh, plastic ones. Uh, this is something that people understand is its time has come. That is Justin Trudeau. It's time has come. And, you know, I don't rule out the possibility that somehow this ends up, you know, profiting Justin Trudeau's family somehow. I'm not ruling that out, you know, because the devil is in the details. But I think we can all agree that, indeed, it's time has come. Single-use plastics that are not recyclable no place for it anymore and there is a way that we can move forward and just like those big mac containers there's other ways forward where we're not putting this plastic into the environment i get a lot of email and if you'd like to send me an email you can always send it to alan.carter at global news at global news.ca that is a-l-a-n dot carter at global news.ca one of the things i get a lot is it got people upset saying, you know what, you don't listen to callers when they call in and tell you that masks don't work or social distancing doesn't work or this whole thing is overblown. And you know what, there's a reason that I don't listen to it because it's not true. 
and I refuse to be part of any kind of amplification of misinformation or incorrect information. I just won't be part of it. Because the world is experiencing two things right now. It's obviously experiencing a pandemic and also an infodemic. And the lack of truth and the misinformation that continues to swirl out there is a big big problem, and Doug Ford addressed it in his press conference yesterday. Uh, Let's get to our guest right now, Dr. Colin Furness, who is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, and welcome to the program, doctor. Good afternoon. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on. Let's just quickly address misinformation, what you see out there and what you think the best way to tackle it might be. Well, there obviously is a lot. I mean, we can we can look at the difference between misinformation and disinformation. You know, disinformation is deliberate, and there are some people with an axe to grind, and they they like to change minds. Misinformation is just a misunderstanding, a rumor that that ends up being adopted. They're both rife, and they have different causes. But one of them is, you know, there's there's a lot of different reactions to trauma, and let's call COVID trauma. And if you think about we think about the stages of grieving and dealing with trauma, there's fear, there's denial, there's there's anger. There's bargaining, there's acceptance. I see all of these. People who are, are living in fear have a lot of mental stress. They tend to be safe, but they pay a price in mental health. People who are angry typically sort of just want it over with. Uh, let's get herd immunity, let's get it done. I'm angry, I don't want this. And then there's denial of people processing this trauma as no, this is not happening. And I think rather than condemning them, I think we need to take a, a sort of compassionate look and say, if you are living in denial, reality is not making sense to you at all. I mean, you are imagining conspiracies where they're not there. And this is this is awful. I mean, this is this is really tragic. And and so I think we need to try and be compassionate, even if our first initial first reaction is to be is to be angry and say, look, you're 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 causing harm, you're causing trouble. I, I think in many cases they they really can't help it. That's a great point, um, and, and interesting to point out that the reaction to those who are uh, spreading misinformation, and I take your point about uh, saying that there's a difference between that and, and misinformation and disinformation, but the reaction from your perspective is, okay, you know, don't shut them down, but try and, you know, move their opinion? Well, I think what you want to try and do is enact social norms. You, you can't do it with enforcement. You can't do it with punishment. Finger-wagging doesn't work. You, you want social norms. You want to essentially try and get as many people as you can rowing in the right direction and providing that positive role model, that positive example that if we do this, things will be okay. I think we can get people away from denial if we can point a different path that actually shows resilience, that shows hope, uh, that shows an end to this. That's been pretty hard to do in COVID so far, and I, I hope we do get there, but... I'm afraid we have some long months first, so I, I don't really see a quick fix to to the kinds of uh, uh, denial and anger that we do see. I was just uh, checking a article that uh, came out in the Scientific American, which kind of goes through some some thoughts on how better to communicate. And this is from a, a, a fairly academic perspective, but you know, basically what it says is that we have to do a lot better job of convincing certain segments of society, like young people, for example. We have to find better ways to do outreach. It, in your estimation, is it is it just, you know, bringing influencers along and bringing along people that, you know, that perhaps the youth might listen to more? Is that key? 
I think that can help. I think with young people it's complicated. If we look at other kinds of health interventions, trying to get young people to use condoms or to not smoke uh, or to not drink and drive, it, the, the kinds of things that work in older people don't work nearly as well. So saying that smoking is going to give you lung cancer, is going to shorten your life, that doesn't work because they can't connect to that. They're young and they feel invincible. They can't think about that. If you tell them that it makes their teeth brown and gives them bad breath and no one wants to kiss them, then you get movement, right? So it's, it's finding the right levers. And I don't have a clear lever for, for COVID-19. It's not something I've, I've spent a lot of time working on, to be honest. But uh, having kids myself, it is, it is a problem that I recognize, that, it's, it's, that the, the messages that ought to work don't. And therefore, we really need to work on finding a lever. And yeah, positive role models too, no question. I, th- there's been much talk about this so-called, you know, Swiss cheese model, and this sort of applies, I think, also to the messaging as well, is because, you know, I hear this a lot. Like people say, well, you know, hey, masks don't work. There's lots of evidence that masks don't work, or social distancing doesn't work. But the evidence is, is that I- any of these particular interventions or these particular things don't necessarily work on their own, and that's where this whole Swiss cheese thing comes in. Can you explain that for me? Yeah, it's, it's easier to show than talk about, but of course we're on radio. So imagine a bunch of uh, slices of Swiss cheese lined up, um, and they've got holes, and some of the holes line up and some of them don't. So if each one of these slices of cheese is a different kind of intervention, where the holes line up, that means that something, you know, COVID can get straight through them, and then they'll hit an intervention where there is no hole. In other words, the strengths of some interventions and the weaknesses of some interventions complement each other, and that your best bet is multimodal, is not to leave anything on the table, is not to say, well, I don't need distancing because I'm wearing a mask or, or vice versa, is to look at it and say, no, no, we actually need to consider the whole suite because COVID can get past in some circumstances, some interventions, but not others. And so a combined approach, if you line up all those slices of Swiss cheese, you don't see any daylight. In other words, nothing can get through. And, and, and I think that's a, that's a really great metaphor for thinking about how these interventions complement each other and they're not really substitutable. It's a great metaphor and also a delicious one, Doc. I think so, too. Dr. Colin Furness is an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for coming on. Very much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to just play this here for you now because, you know, a lot of people, you know, have a, put a lot of stock in what Doug Ford has to say. And a, a lot of people who might have some reservations about how truthful the messaging is from the government and from health authorities about COVID-19. So here again... Doug Ford. The people that are saying this, I don't even know where they're getting this from. This is real, as real as I'm standing here. You can be a denier, you can be an anti-masker, you can do whatever. This is a democratic uh, country. We, you can say what you want. Um, but I'm, I'm just coming up here and telling you what I know. That is Doug Ford. I'm just coming up here and telling you what I know. You can say what you want. It's a free country. Obviously, that is the truth. But if you are actively spreading this disinformation, then you are part of the problem. And I think you need to ask yourself, why? Why is it that you are so certain that you have it right? And all of these other people, all of the officials, all of the health experts, all of the doctors, that they are wrong. Why is it that somehow you believe that you see the truth where others do not. 
polling information. Who doesn't love a good new poll? Ontario Progressive Conservative have 36% support. This according to new data from Abacus Data. Abacus, pardon me. Uh, 36% is voter intention for the PCs. However, that is down five points since the 2018 election. The NDP at 29%, also down five points. The Liberals at 26%, up six points. Really nowhere to go but up from the Liberals if you're talking about the 2018 vote. The Greens up one point and other plus two. Take that as you as you will, with a large grain of salt. Some might be reading into that, that perhaps there's been a slippage in the support of the progressive conservative government handling of the pandemic. But we are a long, long way out from any provincial election. And the premier recently saying, absolutely not. He will not call any kind of snap election. Not going to happen. If you check your email regularly as a parent of children in the TDSB, one of the things that always sends a bit of a chill up your spine is when an email pops into your inbox from the TDSB. Because generally what it means is there has been a change. Something's coming down the pipe that you may not have seen. And yesterday the announcement from the Toronto District School Board was that for secondary school kids, now this is not elementary, this is high school kids, that the whole opportunity to change between in-class or virtual now has been put off. Here's Ryan Bird of the TDSB. This is the first opportunity for high school students to make the switch between virtual and in-person learning. Uh, We've decided to put that on hold for now. That deadline was tomorrow. Uh, As we look at the different options, we want to make sure that We bring some stability to uh, our high schools and make sure that we're doing this as smoothly as possible. So we've decided to put that on hold for now. We'll get some more information out to our families uh, as soon as possible uh, while we look at the different options available to us. That is Ryan Bird from the TDSB. And as a parent, there are two things that I take away, one good and one bad. The good is that the TDSB is attempting to do this as smoothly and with as little disruption as possible. Good. On the other hand, more information to come. Bad. That doesn't sound good. Caroline Alfonso is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail and joins me on the line. Hi, how welcome. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Well, great to have you back. Can you explain what this is all about and whether or not, how how worried should I be as a parent? You know, Alan, uh, when you mentioned right off the top that there's an, when there's an email from the TDSB for a parent, the one that they get nervous all of a sudden, I was also thinking that if I get an email from my school, (laughs) I'm equally nervous. Yeah, no kidding. That may be a COVID-positive case or some change that's happening, too. Um, Just going back to what's happening. So for high school kids, as Ryan Bird said, there was a deadline to switch, and now that's been put on hold. Um, Quad 2 is about to start in late November. So this was the switch for the next quad for high school kids. It's on hold. But the switch will still take place. So the TDSB has basically paused it at the moment. And I think one of the reasons they paused it, Alan, is because of what we saw happen at the elementary level just a week or so ago, where, you know, there were more than 7,000 kids who switched 
from face-to-face, in-class learning to online learning. Mind you, 3,000 switched the other way. But that was a huge number of kids that were going into virtual learning again, despite the fact or in spite the fact that there are still classes in the elementary level that are still not assigned a teacher or are being assigned a teacher hopefully this week. So I think, you know, there has been so much upheaval right now and the TDSB is now examining all these switch dates. So here we have a pause for high school. There's another switch date, Alan, coming up for elementary kids in November. And my understanding is the TDSB is also going to be reviewing that because you just had a switch this month. So I think what the TDSB and even other boards across the province are now looking at is how many times do we allow kids to go back and forth? It all depends on community spread and parents' anxiousness. But what does that do to the operation of the board? And what does that do to assigning kids to teachers and how quickly can that happen? Should um, parents with kids in secondary, um, in, in high school, should they be concerned that their kids might not have a teacher for virtual in this next quadmaster? Ooh, that's a tricky question. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, the board has huge challenges on its hands right now. Um, if you look at the elementary panel, kids didn't, I mean, you know, kids have been in school for a month and some don't have a teacher. Uh, I know the TDSB at one point was looking at adding additional sections to courses by doing it in the evenings, uh, just so that kids could get their subjects or get their credits. Um, I, I think, you know, there's Because of all the switching that happens, you have to move teachers from in-class to virtual at the same time. And that's sort of, you know, the kids move first or the families decide first, and then you have to do the operational thing where the teachers move next, right? So there could be sort of a week or two lag in the system as a result of that. Um, And so will kids have a teacher at the end of the day? Yes, of course they will. Could there be delays? Yes, potentially there could be delays. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see these numbers when we do finally get them from switching for secondary because there's been much less concern about class sizes yeah. because class sizes are, what, 15 is, the, is your top. Definitely, definitely. So it's, it's not the same sort of situation. I, I want to uh, turn back to Ryan Bird here and the another uh, announcement, which is that High school students will no longer, at least in the short term, be writing exams. Here's Ryan Bird from the TDSB. We're essentially basing the final report card mark on uh, coursework during that quadmester and then final assessment. And that could look different uh, depending on the class. It may make sense to have an essay, for example, or some other project. Again, that's Ryan Bird, and I'm speaking with Caroline Alfonso, who is the education reporter for the Golden Mail. Obviously, this makes sense in a pandemic. You can't put a bunch mm-hmm. of kids in a room. And how do you administer a, an exam to virtual students without them just cheating the whole time? Definitely. I mean, um, I would imagine, Alan, there's 
quite a few teens who are celebrating right now. Um, <laughs> this is, <laughs> mind you, this is not happening right across the province. You know, um, the Ministry of Education gave boards the option. Um, they could decide whether they wanted to go ahead with final exams, which are generally worth about 30% of a student's grade, um, you know, if they wanted to go ahead or not. Um, board, some boards decided to do that. Toronto decided to do that. Peel decided to do that, not to administer final exams. It's It's difficult in a pandemic you know you're you know in in toronto you're only allowed 15 kids in class you want to space them out uh how do you how do you administer an exam how do you administer exam to your virtual learners it's difficult to do that and you know there is a lot of there is a big debate about the administering of tests and exams to kids um i know the unions and i know teachers have always said you know when it comes to let's say eqal the standardized testing that it's administered, they're like, it's just, you know, it doesn't capture the learning. It's a high-stress environment. It doesn't capture the learning that happens over the term, over the academic term. And more a better assessment is to have kids do exams, I mean, do essays or, you know, do final assignments or show how they've learned the material in different ways. And that's how we capture learning. So, um, there has been a huge debate about the value of testing, the value of these exams. And right now in a pandemic, I can see how difficult it would be to administer them. I, I would just think from a life experience point of view, though, and you know, maybe this is just my, you know, I did it this way, so you should do it <laughs> this way kind of thinking. But, you know, especially when you get to post-secondary, you know, you, you can run into courses where the exam is 100%. And if you don't have the post, if you don't have the high school experience of trying to study and just the nerves that go along with going into writing an exam, are, are you going to be prepared for post-secondary? Oh, of course. I mean, I, I fully, I fully see that happening. And, um, you know, there is some concern around that. There are tests that happen, though. It's not like we're dropping just about everything. We may not we may not do that final exam, but kids are being tested throughout the year. Um, so hopefully that that takes place. Um, there is, you know, it was interesting when I was having a conversation with someone, a researcher this morning, who was asking about. We were talking about post secondary and you know the grade twelve class coming in, and the concern right now in the post secondary sector is, you know, how prepared are the graduating high school class going to be for that post-secondary environment? You know, what are some of the, what are some of the things that they're not learning in high school um, or that they missed over that spring period when everybody was home uh, or what they're missing right now in this sort of new way of learning? Uh, what is, what are some of the things, what are some of the things that post-secondary institutions are going to have to do to help students cat, not catch up, but actually sort of be prepared for that environment? Caroline Alfonso is the education reporter with the Globe and Mail. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. And here's to no more <laughs> frightening emails from the TDSB, at least the next couple of days. I'm with you there, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Caroline. All right. Uh, coming up in just a couple of moments will be the Premier and his daily update. And he'll be using the bully pulpit for who knows what today, what he'll be on about or who he'll uh, castigate or celebrate. There'll be, there'll be some champions. 100% there'll be some crickets. <laughs> That's what you get when I tell a joke is crickets. Uh, there will be absolute champions. And of course, there might be, if we're lucky, if we're lucky, a bunch of yahoos. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.